I'm Benjamin Perrin. In this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes of my new book, Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial. You'll hear from people who are imprisoned, survivors of violent crime, whistleblowers, insiders and investigators. You be the judge. Join us as we expose injustice, challenge the system, and explore a new transformative justice vision. I'm Benjamin Perrin, and this is Indictment. Today, I'm joined by world-renowned trauma expert, Dr. Gabor Mate. He's the author of many books, including In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and his new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. In our conversation, he exposes how our criminal justice system gets it horribly wrong by not only ignoring, but exacerbating trauma. Dr. Mate also talks about his experience as a physician in Vancouver's downtown east side, being a witness himself in a criminal trial, and how tough-on-crime policies may win votes, but don't make us any safer. Instead, he shares about how taking a trauma-informed approach would change everything about how we address harm in our society. Now, a content note. Today's episode includes general discussions of trauma, including childhood trauma. There are some graphic details shared of a violent assault of a child by his older brother. You'll also hear about mental illness, substance use, unregulated drug deaths, incarceration, racism, poverty, suicide, physical and sexual abuse of children, intergenerational trauma, and ongoing colonial violence against Indigenous people, including the physical and sexual abuse at residential schools. So if you need support, please check out the show notes for resources. I'm Gabriel Mate. Um, after 22 years of family practice and palliative care work, I worked for 12 years in Vancouver's downtown east side with population, as you know, highly challenged by addictions and mental illness, and very often in and out of the revolving door of the criminal justice system as a result of endless drug laws that you have written about and I've written about. This is a highly traumatized population. 30 to 40% of my clients were indigenous. They make up 6% of the Canadian population, which is also reflected in the number of people in jail. I don't, this is not generally known, but 50% of the women in jail in this country are indigenous, which is outrageous. They make up 5% of the female population. It all has to do with trauma, about which both the medical system and the legal system are virtually completely ignorant. So many didn't survive the abuse, but those who did likely never imagined their own children and grandchildren would inherit their unspeakable trauma. It's a public health crisis in this country that's often overlooked. Those affected are at much greater risk for short-term and long-term health impacts. And amid a global pandemic, the problem is only getting worse. The issue? Childhood trauma. A landmark study by researchers from Kaiser Permanente and the CDC in the late 90s. They looked at 17,000 patients' histories of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, 10 potentially traumatic early life events, including physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, exposure to domestic violence, and divorce. Researchers correlated those ACEs with health issues in adulthood. The findings shook the world of medicine. Individuals who experience childhood trauma are eight times more likely to be sexually victimized as adults compared with people who hadn't suffered those childhood traumas. And at the same time, children who are exposed to violence are more likely to commit violence themselves later in life. 
childhood maltreatment and, and abuse increases the risk of someone later committing violence by approximately 50%. Not only that, it increases the chances of someone becoming involved in the juvenile justice system, and it increases their chances of being incarcerated, and it increases their chances of reoffending. So my work has been to show the scientific links, the demonstrated, documented, uh, voluminously published links between early trauma, mental illness, addictions, and criminal behavior, about which there's also a lot of literature. But again, there's a strange gap between both medical and legal practice and the scientific evidence. That gap is what we're trying to close here, I think. So trauma comes from a Greek word for wounding. So essentially trauma is a wound. It's a psychological wound that leaves uh, an either an open sore or a scar or a combination of both. And uh, the imprints, even if there's no conscious recall, the emotional memory is imprinted in the brain, the nervous system and the body through physiological mechanisms. And these traumatic imprints then affect how a person believes, thinks, feels and acts throughout their lifetime. So trauma is a wound that it leaves a long-term impact Trauma is not the event that happens to you. Trauma is the wound that the event incurs. So as we say in the myth of normal, trauma is not the hit in the hockey game, it's the concussion that follows. And uh, the hit is the traumatic event. Now, I distinguish two types of trauma in terms of the traumatic events that can incur it. One is the overt, the highly studied, and uh, again, voluminously published literature on what has been called adverse childhood experiences, the ACE. And that AC refers to physical, sexual, emotional abuse. That's three, violence in the family, a parent dying, a parent being jailed, a parent being addicted, a parent being mentally ill, and neglect. These are the major T, big T traumatic events. But you can also wound children, especially sensitive children, not only by doing bad things to them, but a divorce, for example, is a traumatic event, a rancorous divorce as a child downloads all the stresses and traumas of the parents, to which you have to add uh, racism and poverty as significant factors as well. Then the small T traumas are those wounds that are incurred, not because terrible things happened, but because the good things that should have happened didn't. In other words, the child's needs for emotional understanding, acceptance, love, unconditional support, uh, being heard, seen, supported, or not met, uh, owing to parental stress, parental trauma, societal stress, economic, um, insecurity. For example, a Canadian study showed that mothers who are economically stressed, their children have higher than normal stress hormone levels. In other words, their physiology is being affected by the parental stress. So these small T traumas are rife throughout Western society, which is what my book is about. So basically, trauma is a wound that leaves a long-term impact that influences your behavior without you knowing it, and which can be incurred by bad things happening, such as I outlined, but also children's development needs not being met, which is very common. So those that's the essence of trauma. Here's a key paragraph, which I cite in my book. This is an article from an impeccable source. It's from the Harvard Center on the Developing Child. The article is from the Journal of Pediatrics, which is the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The architecture of the brain is constructed to an ongoing process that begins before birth, continues into adulthood, and establishes either a sturdy or a fragile foundation 
for all, not some, for all the health, learning, and behavior that's followed. So that means that already in utero, stresses on the pregnant woman can negatively impact the development of the child's brain. That's a really important fact. Number two, the interactions of genes and experiences literally shapes the circuitry of the developing brain and is critically influenced by the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships, particularly in the early childhood years, which means that the very physiology of the brain is programmed by the emotional environment. Now, this is key, that the biology of the brain itself grows under the impact of people's early relationships. Now, that means that the circuits of attention, the circuits of motivation, of impulse regulation, of stress regulation, of relationship and connection, these are all shaped, their, their biochemistry, their biophysiology shaped by early experiences. And like any creature, any plant or animal, they enter the world with a certain expectancy of certain conditions obtaining for their healthy development. An acorn has got the potential to become an oak tree, but only if the conditions are right. If you put the acorn on my desk, nothing will happen to it. The human brain is the same. So it has certain expectancies for its healthy development, which developed during evolution over millions of years and interfered with those conditions will then, uh, if they're lacking or, or distorted, will lead to maldevelopment of the brain. And one of the things we're looking at is how experiences of early adversity, such as domestic violence and maltreatment, can lead to changes in brain structure and function that can embed long-term vulnerability to mental health problems. Those who had been exposed to maltreatment and domestic violence showed heightened patterns of activation in those brain regions uh, related to threat vigilance and threat detection. And what was striking is that we see the same pattern in other studies done by other groups where they have looked at soldiers before and after combat. So if you look at drug addiction as one example that often ends up in front of the criminal justice system, if you look at, say, the opiate circuitry of the brain, and opiates are essential brain chemicals. We don't get them from opium. We have our own opiates. They're called endorphins, endogenous morphine-like substances. They are essential for love, for connection, for attachment, for pain relief, and for experiences of pleasure. Now, those kids that are traumatized, those circuits don't develop. Now they need to get their endorphins, their opiates from the outside. Now they turn to opium. Now they're criminals. The impulse of regulation circuitry that tells the person, you might feel like doing this, but it's not a good idea. Right here in the right orbitofrontal cortex where I'm pointing with my hand right now. That circuitry develops under the impact of the environment. In the absence of positive support, and especially in the presence of trauma, there's no impulse regulation which means that you and I might have a violent impulse, but if there's impulse regulation, we won't do it. But if the impulse regulation certainly doesn't develop, then there's aggressive there, it's acted out. Now the person is a criminal because their brain wasn't functioning. I'm not talking about a planned, organized murder. I'm talking about crimes of violence. I could go on. In other words, key brain circuits that govern human behavior develop under the impact of the environment 
And if you don't know the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, he talks about these things as well. So what we're saying here in, in a nutshell is that the physiology of the brain is programmed by the emotional environment and people who are severely traumatized, their brains are therefore in significant ways lacking. And they end up in front of the court system and the courts haven't got a clue who they're looking at. Well, it may satisfy our moral outrage and our desire to feel superior to people, but it's got nothing to do with life or science or human development. And actually, if you look at brain scans at such moments, the circuits of the brain, the midfrontal cortex that allows you to, to exercise that choice is offline. What happens is that the more traumatized you are, the more likely are the wounded, hurt, pain imprinted the emotional circuits of the brain take over and the conscious parts of the brain that are the only things that allow you to exercise choice i mean animals don't respond animals react and that's fine that's how they survive but their reactions are in line with the present moment unless you have a pet that you've tortured in which case you're going to get a lot of automatic negative reactivity but in the wild animals just react from gut feeling that's needed to support their survival now, they don't have these prefrontal cortex with the capacity to consider very much. Now, human beings have them, but the midfrontal cortex and its circuitry of choice and decision-making only develops when the conditions are right. So to say that people have choice is scientific nonsense. You look at their brain at that moment, that part is offline. And especially when in the grips of drug addiction, when the desperation to get the drug is physiologically so overwhelming, that you'll do anything to the drug addict whose brain is impoverished of the essential healthy chemicals for normal functioning. That drug is an essential and the withdrawal is unbearable. So of course they'll commit crimes and steal and commit violence in order to get their drugs. Of course they will. And then to say they have a choice in the matter, well, that's really nice for somebody in a chair with a middle-class upbringing and income and, uh, and, and fortunate circumstances, you know, but just, it's just not the way it is. And if anybody knows anything about the functioning of the traumatized brain, not for a moment would they believe in this fairy tale of choice. Five years after delivering their final report on one of the darkest chapters in Canadian history, residential schools, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission says little action has been taken on their 94 recommendations. The residential school era lasted over 100 years. At least 150,000 Indigenous children were stolen from their families and communities. They were forced to attend schools, often thousands of kilometres away, where physical and sexual abuse ran rampant. At least 3,200 children died. Is it some accident that such a disproportionate number of people in our jails are indigenous? We don't need to convince people anymore of the trauma that those people have endured as a result of Canadian, official Canadian policy for, you know, well over a century in which a native kid, if they spoke their native language, had a pin stuck in their tongue. And that's before the sexual abuse began. I know such cases myself. That imposes a tremendous emotional pain. That emotional pain then needs to be soothed. Wow through drugs, 
which then is, are criminalized. In our native communities, there's unconscionably high rates of suicide, violence, drug use, mental illness. This is a population that used to parent much more compassionately and much more expertly than we ever did as a Western culture. Children were respected, not hit, held, supported by the adults until the colonial system quite deliberately set out to destroy the native family and the native culture. I mean, you couldn't have a better case example than our native population where overdoses and every other uh, impact trauma uh, is so prevalent. Why would anybody even need proof at this point? All you have to do is look at our indigenous population. Those are the kind of people that I serve. First Nations people make up just over 3% of the province's population, but account for more than 16% of illicit drug deaths. Between January and May, 89 people identifying as First Nations died from overdoses, a 93% increase over the same period last year. All my years in the downtown east side, I didn't have a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. I mean, not Large-scale, multiply repeated studies also show, you know, the relationship between childhood adversity and then later criminal behavior and addiction. And not to mention mental illness, and a significant percentage of the prison population is uh, diagnosable. So if people are traumatized by the people in their life who are supposed to take care of them, they'll have a lifelong distrust of authority figures and a fear of them as well. So I've seen it both ways. I've seen cops show up in a hostile kind of authoritarian, uh, aggressive way, which only inflames the situation. By the way, I've seen doctors and nurses do the same thing in emergency wards. I've also seen other cops who are more confident in themselves, perhaps more trauma-informed or just less attached to their role and more in touch with their humanity, show up in a calmer, more patient, sometimes even humorous uh, way, which diffuses the situation. And I've seen the same thing in emergency wards. And neither the doctor or the cop often realizes their own emotional contribution to the situation either can help diffuse or, or inflame it. Now, you know, in some situations, there's certain protocol behaviors you have to follow. But I mean, in many situations, there's some discretion. And the more calm and grounded and, and humanely an authority figure of any sort can show up, the less that situation is likely to devolve into something hostile and, and, and difficult. I'll, I'll tell you a personal story. So for maybe two, four years, I forget, I was the family practice consultant to the psychiatry unit at St. Paul's Hospital. And so that means I had to evaluate mentally ill patients in the emergency ward before they were admitted to the ward. And, and sometimes these were violent people who were kept in the, you know, mentally ill, therefore violent, kept in these padded rooms, you know. And before I go into the room, these big security guys would always come up to me and say, do you want us to come in there with you, doc? And I said, no, don't come in. And so I went in there calmly and, you know, just addressed them humanely. These were vulnerable, fearful people. I've never once triggered a violent reaction. Had I showed up there with this muscle behind me and this authoritarian threatening presence, I would have just scared people. And when people are scared, they go into defensive mode and defensive mode can be very aggressive. And so we need to realize this. 
prison guards need to realize it. The cops need to realize it. But of course, cops themselves never get this kind of training. And very often, they themselves are traumatized. It's a difficult job that they have. And so their own traumas then tend to be brought into the situation to interact with the traumas of the people that they're trying to control. You know, you know you've got the flame and the fuel. Halfway through the year, 2020 is on pace to be the deadliest in two decades when it comes to Canadian encounters with police. We've seen about 30 such deaths annually in recent years. This year, there have been 30 already. That's just one finding in our CBC News project, Deadly Force. Now, we created a database because there is no official count anywhere else. We checked sources, including court cases and media reports, over a 20-year period. And tonight... Two stories highlight two key takeaways. One, that black and indigenous people are overrepresented in deadly encounters with police. And two, that most of the victims had mental health or substance abuse issues. I, I was once uh, stopped by a cop in the downtown east side in the same block as it in sight. And what I was doing is I was on my bicycle and I was sort of coasting down the sidewalk. Cop stops me and I, you know, I wasn't particularly dressed like a doctor, you know. So he stops me, you know, she's fine. I mean, it's his job. His tone was so supercilious and uh, controlling until he looked at my driver's license. Is that your address? He said, I said, yeah, you don't live here. I said, no, I'm a doctor. His tone changed like that. He became respectful and, you know, he says, well, you better not do this anymore. You know, now he wasn't even conscious of it. But the racial and class bias that goes into how they show up for the people, you know, this cop was just doing his job, but he didn't realize how his tone changed when he found out that I was, after all, one of the respectable sorts, you know? Mm -hmm. Not all beings deserve respect. His tone shouldn't change because I'm middle class, nor should it be worse because I'm lower class, you know? But, but they're, not, they're not even aware of it. And then what does it say about our society then that we're continuing to, to punish so many people who have these, these traumas? Well, it's feast of tremendous ignorance. I mean, and then you can't blame people for being ignorant. I mean, even doctors are ignorant. The average physician hasn't got a clue what I'm talking about. It's not because I can't back it up with science. I can back it up with a thousand scientific studies, but it's not presented in medical education any more than it is at the UBC law school or really anywhere else, any institutions of higher learning. So... And the media doesn't talk about this stuff very much. And, and politicians, it's much easier to get raw, raw support for being tough on the criminals because people are always insecure in a society. They're never feeling safe. And so somebody who's going to become a, a you know, authoritarian, uh, crime-squashing protector in a night, you know, in shining armor, while people will always fall for that political line. Failure of the the system to not support people who have committed crimes, gone to jail, served their their sentence, you know, and then they're committing another crime. So is this not a failure of things like social services and support for people who have committed crimes? Are you, are you serious? I'm asking you. No, oh, I mean, are you serious? Come on, you're telling me. No, excuse me. Let, let me answer your question. Are you honestly saying that it's society's fault? If a repeat violent offender commits 60 or 70 offenses, I think that criminal is to blame for his own actions. He is personally responsible. 
We're not talking about some kid who made one mistake when he was 19. We're talking about people who do 60, 70 violent offenses. And then they're be because they're criminals. But why are they criminals? Because they do crime. And why do they do crime? Because we let them out early on bail. So because they I got let out. think we solved the riddle here. Because they got let out early on bail. That's right. They then commit the crime. That's right. So that's what the, that's what all the experts agree is the cause of the crime. So they stayed in jail the whole time on on bail in in jail, not on bail, as you say. They would then not commit crimes because they'd be in jail, so they couldn't commit crimes. And when they get out at the end of their sentence, they're crime free. Well, they we we can't guarantee that. And so there's political capital to be made out of being tough on crime. But there's no humanity, no compassion, and worse for society, no resolution of the problem either. Uh, when I was working at Insight, uh, I was the physician at the rehab facility upstairs from Insight, the supervised injection site. The then government tried to shut the place down, as you know, and they fought the case all the way to the Supreme Court. and. There was a panel at the UBC Law School about it, the case as it was going on, and the lawyer for the government was there, and so was I, as was one of the lawyers defending Insight. And at some point, I said to the lawyer for the government, I said, look, quite apart from the legalities, here are the facts. If you win your case, documentally, people are going to die. If we win our case, documentally, people are going to live. How do you feel about that? He said, well, my job is not to worry about the outcomes. My job is to make sure that the law is applied the way it's written. Now, to me, that's a cop-out. Because what he was doing had lethal implications. So I think the law needs to look at itself and get out of its mechanical, legalistic mindset and look at the actual impact, human impact of its practices. I'm a person with a trauma history. This is, I don't know, four or five years ago. I was invited to be an expert witness for the defense in a murder case. There was no question that the person had killed the victim, um, but the question was his motivation and state of mind at the time. And um, he'd been interviewed by three forensic psychiatrists, two of whom testified on his behalf, one of them for the prosecution. All of them had missed this trauma history, which is incredible. You know, they all said he had a happy childhood. In his happy childhood, his father drank, his mother was depressed. He probably did ADHD. He was bullied in school. And when he was four years old, his brother threw him to the ground, broke his arm, and set fire to his hair. And none of the psychiatric histories elicited any of that history. Unbelievable. They don't know how to ask a simple question. But... I was brought in to talk about what happens to the, you know, this guy also had addiction issues, and I was asked to talk about how the addicted brain under the circumstances, whatever, you know. It doesn't matter what my opinion was. I just returned from Australia, where I'd been asked to lecture to the Judicial Council of Melbourne in Australia. I'd been asked in a number of cases previously to act as a witness. I lectured to judges in the Yukon, the North Western Territories, to the Manitoba Legal Society, I'd written a well-reviewed and best-selling book on addiction. 
So I, I thought I'd just write my report and I'd go on and they'd ask me about it. No, first they had to qualify me as an expert witness. Nobody prepared me for that particular ordeal. The job of the prosecution wasn't to find out what I knew. It was basically to disqualify me because my testimony would undermine their case of second degree murder. They were not in the least interested in what I knew. They were interested in provoking me into saying stupid things. When I get provoked and insulted, which she was doing, she was putting words in my mouth that I never said that I would never say. It was all about undermining my credibility. I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't know. I just thought I was there to answer questions. So I got really riled. So I reacted like, when I get attacked, I get very aggressive. No, so the judge says I'm very arrogant. Well, fuck you, you nonary. You put yourself into that position when you're attacked and your credibility is questioned, you know, especially when you know what you're talking about more than some others. How would you react, Your Honor? But what happened then is what happened just now. I came from a very hostile place. Ended up being disqualified. Now, I really fell for it. And I have to congratulate the prosecution. If she's committed to discrediting me rather than seeking the truth, she did a great job. If her job was to seek the truth, of course, she would have behaved very differently. So that, that makes you want to wonder what the justice system is all about anyway. If I was doing that again, I did a calmest cucumber on the block. I'd actually hold on to my piece. I'll answer your question exactly the way you're posing it. I just give you the answer. There will be no heat or emotion in it. And if that's what I'd been prepared to answer, I would have been qualified, I'm sure. Because what I had to say, as the judge admitted, that come from expertise. But what I'm saying is, if I, as a highly respected and internationally even renowned professional, whose credentials are not in question, and whose life is not in any danger, whose fate doesn't depend on the court ruling. The only thing that depended was my ego. And my ego got riled, and I got triggered into responding like a very immature young person. But what if I was an immature young person, lower class, being accused of a crime, and the prosecution spoke to me with the same contempt? I'd be riled, triggered, intimidated, crushed. And nothing in my life depended on the outcome except how I looked. So it was an object lesson and a very necessary one for me about how to conduct myself. Not that I'll ever do this again because I just hated the whole process. I just would not participate in that charade again for any money in the world. And I just wouldn't do it again because I, the process is so discredited in my eyes. But the point is, if it had that effect on me, totally throwing me off my game and triggering my own aggressive, defensive responses. What does it do to actually traumatize young people who've been racialized and had been abused all their lives, who've never had trauma healing like I've had, who don't have the expertise, the economic and social security that I had? I can only shake my head and wonder, what, you know, what, what's it like for them? Well, the obstacles are, first of all, the ignorance that we've been exploring in this conversation, which is, because I actually find on the individual level, when I talk to lawyers or judges or even in group setting, they're very open to this kind of information. They don't quite know what to do with it, given the strictures of the system. But it's not that they're closed-minded about it. Some of them are, but most are not, you know? So mostly it's ignorance. Secondly, it's the... I was once invited to speak to a subcommittee of the 
Canadian Senate. Um, they were introducing some omnibus criminal bill under the Harper government. In the subcommittee, there was a majority of conservatives and some NDP and some liberal senators as well. And uh, I was telling them all everything that I've told you or I've written about the science, the brain development, you know, the, the impacts of trauma. I wish I could say that it was going in one ear and out the other. It wasn't even going in the one ear. They just, the conservatives particularly, they had an ideological point of view. So ideology blinds and, and deafens you. So political ideology is a major obstacle. Political opportunism is. He is in love with the sound of his own voice and his own attacks, but he doesn't actually check the facts. This from a guy who, if he were made of chocolate, he would eat himself. <laughs> the current government has all kinds of evidence. He's had it for a long time about the impact of the drug laws. They haven't changed them. I'm talking about the current federal level government. It's, it's like the conservatives are ignorant. They keep themselves that way. I don't mean as a group. I've talked to individual conservative members of parliament who tell me I agree with you. I just can't talk about it in my party. I've had ministers in various provinces tell me the same thing. I agree with you. I just can't, you know. But for the most part, they're ignorant because ideologically they're blind. Liberals are therefore far more culpable because they know better because they have the evidence in front of them. They still don't act on it. I might make the same case for the NDP, you know? So the more you know, the more culpable you are. And what stops you is opportunism because you want to get reelected and you don't want to take the risk of saying something that the public... Now, if you're going to be a leader, leadership doesn't mean that you follow public opinion polls. It means that you lead, but politicians refuse to lead. Their leadership is actually followership. People are invested in their roles, they're invested in their self-image, they're invested in what they're used to, and uh, all of a sudden for prosecutors and judges, policemen to acknowledge, oh boy, we've been barking up at the wrong tree for all these decades. So the system knows how to entrench itself. Incarceration in principle is not the problem. I mean, when somebody commits a violent crime, for example, they may need to be incarcerated to protect society. But that's different from punishment. You can incarcerate people with a view of rehabilitating them. And then you would provide them with emotionally supportive conditions, with, with trauma uh, healing therapies, with skill teaching. And when you do that, you get tremendous results. And we see that in jails in, North, in some Nordic countries. We also see such programs Rarely, but so mostly on private initiative in North American jails. But for the most part, the jails are punitive. The guards are not trained. In, in fact, the guards are often as traumatized as the prisoners are. So they inflict that trauma on the prisoners, their contempt, the, or the, the lack of proper human interaction. Solitary confinement. The criminal justice system earns its name. It is a criminal justice system because it actually hurts people very often. Not because it means to but out of criminal ignorance, I would say. Solitary confinement changes the brain. Solitary confinement actually depletes the brain of important receptors that are essential for human functioning. And yet we impose it on people. Despite all the education and the court cases around it, it's still practiced. It's certainly in American jails to a ludicrously harmful effect. So 
Incarceration itself can be a positive influence or a negative one, depending on the ethic, intention, and practices that inform it, which for the most part under our system are highly negative, not to mention underpaid workers, understaffed, lack of funding for psychological services. The stress that, that is put on the criminal justice providers themselves, which itself makes them less patient and less compassionate towards the people that they're meant to, I would say, serve, you know, because they should be serving them, not just punishing them. So it's, it's a perfect storm for re-traumatizing people, and which is why you have this revolving door. It doesn't need to be that way. As a society, we now know how hard it is to be a frontline worker. We hear the stories of firefighters, EMS, and police officers who've been psychologically wounded on the job. But what about prison guards? In a study on Corrections Canada's own website, 17% met the criteria for PTSD. Another study estimates it's 25%. That's higher than the level found in Vietnam veterans wounded in battle. And yet prison guards live in the shadows. Their stories hidden by the very walls and bars that surround them every day. If we actually understood something about trauma and its rehabilitation, it would look like providing good prenatal care for pregnant women. Because we now know, as, as I've quoted from that paragraph from Harvard, the brain is already shaped in utero. And the emotional stresses on women during pregnancy have a negative impact on the brain development of infants and children. You know, it shows up later in life in mental health issues that can lead to misbehavior. In other words, we just did in prenatal care, which physicians are taught to provide. We only look at the biological aspects, about pressure and weight and diet and so on. We should talk to people about the stresses that they're under and see what support we can give them. That's the first thing. The second thing is, particularly families at risk, they get lots of support. We know that home nursing visits to young families at risk improves the outcome, behavior outcome, and mental health outcome of the children. This would not be cost intensive, it would be cost saving. Thirdly, preschool teachers, kindergarten uh, caregivers would be taught about trauma. You know, when we talk about children acting out, what are they acting out? They're acting out their traumas in every case. If teachers and educators understood that rather than punishing kids and isolating them, they'd be treating them compassionately with expertise. So if a kid is quote-unquote acting out, that child will be identified as a kid at risk and they'd receive compassionate, caring, inclusive responses from the school system rather than punitive responses which will guarantee that they'll end up in the juvenile courts, by the way. I mean, the punitive. The justice system for young people, adolescents and so on, will be trauma-informed. It wouldn't be about behavior control and the medical management of mental health conditions that are outcomes of trauma itself. Now, there's a British psychologist, Richard Bentall, a member of the British Academy, who said that he's only stating the facts that the link between childhood adversity and adult mental health issues is as strong as the link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. So when these kids, we wouldn't just be mitigating their symptoms with drugs, with pills, we would be actually healing their trauma. And then, then we would educate physicians about trauma, which is right now at the UBC doesn't happen. The average physician doesn't get a single lecture on the relationship of trauma and mental health, addiction, adult behavior, let alone physical illness, 
all of which has been vastly and got, you know, irrefutably demonstrated in the scientific literature. Same, we, we, we already talked about the gap in the bomb education of the legal profession. I mean, it's grievous lack. We would educate teachers about it. In other words, we'd have a trauma-informed perspective. We would look at the law, the drug laws, for example, and you and I don't need to discuss it too much because you've written about it very articulately and, and you know, you've been through your own education about that. You didn't begin with the point of view that you have now. Yeah. But you allowed yourself to be educated by experience and evidence, mm -hmm. which the law doesn't so far allow itself to be. So let alone the obvious oddity, if you were, that people can profit off cigarettes and liquor, which kill many more people in this country than ever die of drugs exponentially more. And they're respectable philanthropists, very wealthy to boot. So, I mean, this is a, such a hypocritical system. I'm not yeah. saying they should be in jail, but right. should anybody be allowed to profit off killing people? I would look at programs that I personally know in, um, in prisons where people go in there with some compassion and with the most hardened criminals, the most um, inveterate, violent people transform once the trauma is addressed. So that gives you a glimpse of what's possible. I know a friend of mine here in Vancouver who introduces Vipassana meditation in prisons. Remarkable results. The guards are so happy because these people become less violent and less resistant and more cooperative. So these little glimpses of what's possible exist. They just need to be supported in a, in a much broader way. In my book, Indictment, I set out seven pillars of a new transformative justice vision. The first, and where we need to start, is healthy kids and communities. That means proactively intervening to prevent and mitigate trauma while making investments in what are called social determinants of justice, things that make a difference. Things like housing, poverty alleviation, education and employment support. We can literally prevent the crimes of tomorrow from taking place by the decisions we make today. Now, I give concrete examples of how we can actually do this. Evidence-based programs that have proven track records that have done this. Programs like the Nurse Family Partnership that pairs up a public health nurse who supports a family from the time that, that someone is pregnant all the way through the early years of that child's life. The research on that is just absolutely incredible. They've done randomized control trials that have found that those families fare better across multiple metrics. And most importantly for our conversation, we see reduced rates of criminal justice involvement. But what about people causing harm today? Well, that's why there's six other pillars in what I describe as a new transformative justice vision. One of which is rehabilitation and healing. This means abolishing traditional prisons and jails that are not making us any safer. And as we've seen, actually increase the risk of reoffending. It means significantly expanding and improving community-based alternatives to incarceration and only separating people from society as a last resort. When we do that, it needs to be in secure rehabilitation and healing centers, not punishment and harsh conditions. I look in my book in some detail at places like Halden Prison in Norway, which has been called the most innovative and most humane prison in the world. They reduced recidivism or reoffending from 60 to 70% of people were reoffending 
down to just 20% by changing from having a prison system very much like we have here in North America to instead prioritize healing and rehabilitation. The key question that they ask themselves is what kind of a neighbor do you want to have? Because virtually everyone in jail is getting out at some point. I don't know about you, but I would rather have someone who has had help in getting therapy and support for their underlying challenges and the traumas they've experienced in their life, support for their mental health conditions, treatment for substance use issues, using this time to learn jobs and skills that are employable. We have over a million jobs that are unfilled in Canada. Most of all, being treated like a person, like a human being. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes as they go live. And remember to rate and review us. To find out more, get a copy of my latest book, Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial, by Benjamin Perrin, published by the University of Toronto Press. All author royalties are directly donated to nonprofit organizations that support people who've been incarcerated and survivors of violent crime. Indictment was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam people. To protect their privacy, the names of people with lived experience have been changed. This podcast is obviously not intended to provide legal, medical, or therapeutic advice. If you're in need of help with any of these things, please consult a professional for assistance. The topics we cover can be upsetting and triggering. If you need support, please check out the show notes for resources. Funding and support for indictment was provided by the Law Foundation of British Columbia and the University of British Columbia. Indictment is produced by me, Benjamin Perrin and Dora Duber. Keep listening and stay safe. See you next time.